Hi folks, it's Dr. Christine Sauer here with another episode of Sparkles for Better Mental Health. And I'm excited today to have Tim Swakhammer. Did I pronounce it right, Tim? You got it. Awesome on the show. And Tim is a very interesting guy because he works with indoor air. Wow, Tim, tell us, how did you become passionate about indoor air quality? Yeah, so thank you very much for having me on. Um, I'll say my my story is quite different from a lot of people in the field. Uh, I didn't have like an innate passion for this space whenever I was a kid. I didn't uh, grow up in the field or anything like that or have any real personal callback to it. But mine came from sort of a pragmatic approach. Uh, we were involved in home services. And basically, while working in the home services, I saw that there were a lot of people that were dealing with indoor air quality issues, and particularly with mold, that they didn't have any great resources out there, and there weren't a lot of companies that were really out there uh, addressing these issues. I mean, uh, at least here where we are in the States, there's a lot of restoration companies, your serve pros and service masters and things like that, but they're really kind of in a different space. They're focused more on insurance work. Uh, so if you have a fire, you have a flood, uh, they'll come in on the behalf of your insurance company and uh, restore your property to the way it was before. But for people who are struggling with ongoing indoor air quality problems, there really wasn't anybody out there. So identifying that need, uh, I went to my, my hobby. My wife always jokes that uh, I don't really have a hobby. My hobby is researching other hobbies, and she's not entirely wrong. Uh, and for me, it just became like a goal of, okay, I got to learn all I can about this and figure out, okay, what, what can we be, what can we be doing here? Uh, and how can we help these people? And that's sort of where mold medics came from. I think that's amazing because I live in Canada. So similar situation, cold season, lots of heat. Yep. And as most in the civilized world, 90% of our time we spend indoors. Mm -hmm. So tell us the things that can contribute to bad indoor air quality. Yeah, so that's that's really great. And there's, I mean, it's a very, very loaded subject mm -hmm. uh, because there are so many different things that can contribute to bad indoor air quality. Uh, one of the biggest ones is going to be what's the air quality like on the outside of your home mm -hmm. uh, and just where you live. And unfortunately, that's something that's tough because you don't really have a ton of control over your air quality and your environment. That's pretty much set by where you live. Uh, but excluding that, there's a lot of different things that can really play into your indoor air quality in your home. Um, one of the first things I always like to hit on is just the importance of keeping your home clean and tidy and well-maintained. Uh, because these are things that a lot of people don't really think about. It's They don't think it's a huge deal if they let the paint go too long, like exterior paint or caulking get uh, dried out and cracked, anything like that. Like a lot of the, the basic home maintenance stuff just tends to not be at the top of mind. And a lot of people focus more on aesthetics versus uh, the fact that these are essential components to our home to keeping them healthy and operating as they should. Uh, in the case of caulking and paint and grading around our home, it's all about keeping water from infiltrating into our walls, seeping into our building materials, because once we've got water, we can have a mold problem. So that's a huge, huge, huge one for me is just making sure you're keeping your house in good operating order and keeping it tidy, keeping it picked up. Uh, this is one I 
I always cringe anytime my wife watches hoarders on TV. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> because, yeah, and I mean, obviously, they've got a, a variety of different things going on uh, there from like a mental perspective with it. But looking at the environments that are created by these kind of behaviors, and we all do it to some degree or another, uh, but just recognizing that those actions and uh, keeping old clothing, piling up things around the exterior of our homes, not using hangers, but just sort of piling things in closets. Uh, we don't really think about it, but these can all be contributors to indoor air quality. And it's just something that uh, that people need to be aware of. So that's a good point. So mother was always right. Tidy up behind you. There's a Absolutely. reason behind it. There's a reason behind it. And, and I love it when you say that. And while I'm at it, I'm not sure if you have explored that issue, but I come from Germany and most of the houses are made with brick. Yep. And I didn't see too much mold in Germany, although I looked for it as a physician. When I came to Canada, it seemed to be everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. Did you notice that there's a difference in indoor air quality, whether your building is built the traditional American way uh, with studs and wood and stuff, or even the, the, the naturalistic way with mud and straw or with brick? Yeah, so that's a, a really great question. And it's interesting because uh, it's a huge component of how mold and how other indoor air quality problems can come about. Uh, and it's really difficult to kind of decouple the uh, the geographic element of it and the home building construction. So like we use, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we use construction methods that don't get used at all in Florida because in Florida, they're dealing with very different environments. They've got a lot more humidity. They obviously have to be able to withstand hurricanes and factor all of that into their construction. Uh, whereas around here, we, we don't have that. Uh, so each environment has its own little interesting uh, spins on the way that homes can be constructed, and they all can have pluses and minuses towards how they're built. And what's interesting, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that point up, some of the most problematic homes that we encounter are ones where for uh, architectural reasons or for aesthetic reasons, they're taking a style or design that was made for somewhere else on the planet and they're putting it here. And that does not always work well. Uh, for instance, one of the, the big ones we see a lot, uh, flat roofs. Flat roofs are an artistic, they're, are, uh, they're a more aesthetically pleasing to some people, they're a more modern look. Um, but whenever it comes to being able to handle large amounts of rain, which we do get during the spring and summer seasons, they just can't really do it. And particularly, dealing with the winter where we have snowfall and the freeze-thaw cycle, uh, it's very, very difficult to get a flat roof to be a, an efficient system at handling that rain and diverting it and keeping it from coming into the home. So anytime we see those uh, different designs pulled from other parts of the, the world and put into places where they didn't originally belong, uh, it's not to say that it can't be done well, but it requires a lot of thought on the architect's part to really figure out, okay, how can we make this work in this area? You know, that's a really interesting point. And I always talk to people about food from a similar perspective. It really depends where you're living that you get the freshest and best food. It's different where you live in yeah. the Arctic or in Africa. So there's no one size fits all. And it's interesting that it applies to building and indoor air quality. 
Absolutely. Now, let's get back to mold. Let's say somebody is reasonable and they say, I don't smoke because smoking, of course, is a major pollution for indoor quality. Say they don't mm -hmm. smoke, but maybe they have a cat and a dog and they just live in a normal house. So uh, how do they know whether they have a mold issue? Yeah, so uh, in most cases, our, or our clients contact us because they have they either have identified one or they suspect a problem. How do they and, identify it? How do they yeah, so it? great question. A lot of times it comes up uh, not even by the homeowner, but somebody else visiting the home. So in many cases, this is they're uh, selling the home or they're considering selling the home and they have a home inspection and you got... A guy with a flashlight poking around in places that the homeowners normally don't spend a lot of time. They're in the basement, in the crawl space, in the attic, looking under the cabinets, um, and just really kind of investigating. And that's where uh, issues can be brought up. Uh, or the homeowner suspects they have a problem because they're feeling something with their body. And they've gone to the doctor, they've investigated uh, a lot of the different things with their diet and uh, the uh, way that they're moving their body and everything, and that hasn't resolved it. So now they're starting to look towards other explanations, including their environment. And that's where we'll generally get called in to come and investigate the home and see if, okay, is there something in the home that could be contributing to that? And that's a fascinating thing because as a brain and mental health coach and doctor, I actually test for mold toxins. And you can do yep. that in the urine, and then you know whether you have a mold issue that affects your health. But yep. question for you, I often go in people's basements and it smells musty. Is that more? Yeah, most likely. Yeah, um, almost certainly. I mean, generally, whenever you're noticing that musty odor, it is a production of the mold spores that are coming into the environment through an active mold growth. Um, and it's funny, whenever we talk about mold, a lot of people think they, they have this picture in their head of the toxic black mold that they've seen on TV and everything. And it's just a big black mass that's growing on drywall or wood or something. Um, and while sometimes that's what we encounter, a lot of times we encounter mold that is not due to an actual water intrusion, but due to humidity problems. Mm. And those can be a huge contributor to those musty odors and a lot of allergens to mold that people are experiencing because it doesn't take a ton of humidity for you to start developing mold growth. And once you have that, if you're not in control of the humidity in your home, uh, it can really get out of control pretty fast. And the way that you look for it is different. And the places that you'd look for it are different than your kind of typical water intrusion mold. So I know that in many apartment buildings, there's nothing the renter can do if they detect that musty smell or they think maybe there's a mold issue. Mm -hmm. But if you're a homeowner, you have control over it. Uh, now, let me ask you, not all mold is toxic. How do you know if you have toxic mold that actually affects your health? Yeah, so there's a couple of molds that are particularly known for being very big indicators of health. I mean, again, going back to toxic black mold, stachybotrys, this is the most common one that we see associated with uh, health issues and definitely the most uh, notable one, but a lot of them can have different health implications. Uh, Aspergillus penicillium, families of mold, can have huge health implications, despite them being one of the more common types that we see. Uh, so from that perspective, I try not to spend too much time on the exact type and is this safe, is this dangerous? No amount is safe if it's growth that's going on in your home because of a water intrusion. 
at bare minimum that needs to be removed and the water intrusion issue needs to be fixed so you don't have an ongoing growth. Because even if you have one particular type right now, uh, a lot of these thrive in very, very similar conditions. So even though that one's not necessarily impacting your health, a different type that begins to grow could. And uh, one of the unfortunate things with mold is people uh, react to it in very different ways. So there's genetic components to it. There's uh, historic components to it in terms of your individual history with exposure to mold, exposure to Lyme disease, uh, and a variety of other things that can impact how severely or not you react to different types of mold. So even though the current occupants may not be reacting very, reacting very strongly, you have no idea who's going to be coming into the, that environment that can. That is a very good point, Tim, because uh, you're basically saying it's never safe to live in a house with mold. Correct. Uh, so as a homeowner, if I smell or detect mold or before even the mold comes out, I had a water leak. What can I do to either prevent a mold issue or fix it? Yeah. So as the saying goes, a pre prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That is 100% true for mold. Uh, if you notice any sort of water intrusion, uh, whether it be foundational water intrusion, a pipe leak, anything like that, the most important factor is to dry it out as quickly as you can. Um, and this is this can get to be a tricky situation depending on how early you notice it. Uh, if you notice it when it's just started leaking and you can get it opened up, get it dry, uh, in many cases, you won't have an issue. Uh, but if the water intrusion has been going on for a while and you already have growth going on, that's where you definitely want to consult a professional because even the act of opening it up and trying to dry it out, well, how would you go about drying it out? Well, you'd use maybe a dehumidifier or you'd put some fans on it. Uh, you'd get it open. And if there's already significant active growth there, now you can take something that was relatively contained and you can contaminate a much, much larger area very easily. So uh, if it's if you don't see any mold growth and it's just it's a very new leak, get it stopped, get it dried out immediately. Um, something I'm a big advocate advocate for is always investigate. If you notice a weird spot of water on your floor, if you notice water coming from under the uh, refrigerator, don't just clean that up and then go on with your life. Take the extra time, move the refrigerator, see where it's coming from, uh, and really try to investigate because if you don't, you will most likely be uh, ignoring a potential issue that can, can get out of hand very, very quickly. Um, and if there is growth, that's the time that you'd want to consult a professional wow. because uh, in a lot of cases, what we initially see is not, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the a very common situation we see is a, a home where they have some sort of water intrusion in, inside a wall cavity. So it could be from a pipe leak. It could be from water from the exterior getting to the inside of the home. Uh, and we get notified because the customer, uh, they saw a little bit of like bubbling and maybe some dark coloration from some mold growth coming in right above a baseboard. Like So it's on the wall right above the baseboard. They're just seeing a little bit, maybe like a dollar bill sized amount. Um, nothing insane. And they think, oh, it's, it's not a huge deal. Uh, and sure enough, whenever we get out there, we set up our containment and everything, remove the baseboard and behind that baseboard for feet in either direction is absolutely soaked, covered in mold. We open up that wall cavity and that wall cavity is completely filled. 
because we're just seeing where it has started to rise. And now it's getting to the point where we can see it. But there's a whole lot of growth that's been going on uh, and hidden that we haven't been able to observe. Wow. So it's really important to get an expert and look for the areas where it's most likely that the moisture and the mold is hiding. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you, most newer buildings in the last 10 years at least have an air exchanger that if you keep it switched on, which some homeowners I know switch it off because they don't like the draft, as minimal as it is, uh, is supposed to prevent mold and exchange outdoor air for indoor air by balancing temperature. Yep. Do you see less mold when that is on? So that is a great point. And this is one area where Canada is definitely well above the US because uh, what you're referring to is a, a heat recovery ventilator or an energy recovery ventilator, depending on your area. Right. Um, track, yeah. Yep. And those are not common practice, specifically where I am. Uh, other nearby areas, they are required by code, but it's definitely not something that is universal that everywhere has them. Uh, they're a, they are a great element to help improve your indoor air quality, because whenever it comes to any sort of environmental contaminant, there's two things that we can do. We can remediate or remove it, uh, or we can dilute it. And we're diluting it in the case of an uh, HRV or an ERV, we're diluting it with that outside air. So we're exhausting the indoor air and we're bringing in new fresh air from the outside. So that's definitely a benefit. They're not necessarily going to actually prevent mold growth, uh, but they are going to help with overall indoor air quality for sure. Yeah, especially if people are breathing inside, because when we as humans breathe, we produce moisture. And yep. we all know that when we're in a car, the windows fog up. <laughs> That's the moisture from us. And it's the same in a building, in indoors. So if you mm -hmm. uh, at least open the windows in buildings that don't have that air exchanger, I think we are doomed to get a moldy environment. Yeah, I mean, people don't understand. We produce a ton of moisture. I mean, just going about our day between uh, showering, cooking, I mean, every time you boil a pot of water, all that evaporation, that's moisture going into your, going into your air. Uh, even just having uh, toilets, that water evaporates slowly into our home. Uh, ourselves, we produce a lot of moisture, house plants, pets, we don't, we everything. We don't even have to sweat, we just breathe. <laughs> exactly. That produces moisture, it's amazing. Yeah, and, so I, and it's a, really important. Yeah, and in, in a lot of cases, our homes are built to kind of deal with the baseline amount of moisture that we're going to be producing. Uh, and where we see a lot of problems is when now there's a failure of the building environment or there's something else that wasn't accounted for that's adding to that moisture. Like a really common one we see, unfortunately, is improperly vented dryers. Mm. Uh, so a your clothes dryer should be vented to the exterior uh, and that's really important. You keep those clean and stuff as well for fire prevention. Um, but whenever you dry your clothes using a, a traditional dryer, uh, all of that moisture, all that water that was that your clothes were soaking in needs to go somewhere and it should go out the exhaust. Well, in a lot of cases, people don't have it exhausted properly to the outside. It may go up and just exhaust into an attic. And now we're adding a ton of additional moisture into the attic. I've seen them where they just exhaust into a wall cavity and then it's disconnected and that creates a whole host of problems. Uh, or in some cases, they'll just disconnect it and it'll just be exhausting right behind the dryer and uh, creating all kinds of problems. So exhausting we see- Exhausting right behind the dryer, in the house? Yeah. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Uh, 
I mean, they even sell, uh, if you go at least around here, I've seen them, uh, the big box stores, your Lowe's and Home Depot and everything, uh, sell a dryer vent kit that is just a thing of flex duct. And then it goes to basically a bucket uh, with the idea being it goes into this bucket and then it has some holes on the top to allow the extra uh, humid air to come out the top of it. It is a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, but they sell them. I don't, I don't, I mean, yeah. Well, I've heard that when you have an older building and it's relatively mold free, it's a nice older building. And then you want to modernize it. You insulate it, you tighten all the air leaks, you put new windows in. Suddenly you have a mold problem. What, what happened? Yeah, so that, that can happen. And that's a very difficult scenario and something that you really, really, really want to think through. So whenever we look at much older homes, we didn't see a ton of significant mold problems because they were leaky. They were drafty. They had a lot more natural air infiltration. Uh, it was terrible for energy costs, but uh, way back in the day, we didn't really care about that as much. We weren't as aware, and there was a lot more fossil fuels being burnt and everything. So uh, they just kind of burnt more heat and go on with it. But uh, now that we're getting to homes that we want to be a lot more energy efficient, we're tightening them up significantly which eliminates the ability for these homes to breathe short of mechanical ventilation like HRVs or ERVs. Uh, and it's interesting because we've also moved to more building materials that uh, are less expensive to produce and faster to install and can have some other benefits as well. But many of them are much, much, much worse for mold growth and uh, water damage in general. I mean, a lot of the manufactured products that we utilize today, uh, MDF is a per uh, perfect example, which is a medium density fiberboard. Uh, it's basically sawdust compressed together with glue. Um, and it's it's super problematic because the mold can feed off the glue, the mold or the mold can feed off the sawdust. Uh, and because it's not a solid material at all, uh, it just acts as a sponge and it sucks up moisture very, very readily. And then you have mold growth all throughout it. Whereas if that Same was- Same idea as food, food toxins in, in hamburger versus steak. Yep. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's a yeah. great So that's, that's very common. And we see it with a lot of the building products that we use now. I mean, even uh, it used to be the case that structural framing, your two by fours and everything were the one thing that was always going to be solid wood. And now they're moving to more manufactured uh, structural members, uh, manufactured I-beams and everything where it's basically uh, uh, forms of plywood that are structured to shape like an eye. And uh, they have a lot of the same problems. They're, they're fiberboard that's glued together. And yeah, you're removing, uh, you're taking a solid piece of lumber and you're replacing it with a manufactured piece that is much more susceptible to water and mold. So oh, that's uh, really a fascinating point. And uh, I, I would like to address a little bit the physics of indoor air because it is very important for moisture, whether, what the air is in the temperature. And mm -hmm. many people notice that, especially in the winter, maybe the windows have condensation water in the inside. What does that yep. mean and where does it come from? Yeah, so that's a really, really good issue uh, to bring up. And that's something, again, we see a lot. And the windows are generally going to be the first place that you see that condensation. And what it is, is we have warm, humid air inside our home. And whenever you have that, uh, it's going to hit dew point somewhere. And generally, that's going to be on the coldest surface it can find. 
So if you have too much humidity in that indoor air, you have a very, very cold window in the winter because windows aren't as well insulated as the rest of our walls. Uh, it's going to hit condensation or it's going to hit dew point on that window. You're going to get that condensation. Um, and what's interesting with that is not only do we see that condensation on the window, which is very problematic, uh, but if you start looking closely, you can see it other places as well. Uh, so something very common we see is homes that will have that condensation from excess humidity in the home. Uh, we'll go and look at an exterior corner and they'll have condensation appearing there too because of the way that the homes are framed. There's not as much insulation in the corners as there are in the rest of the walls. And you can start having condensation in those places too. Um, and it's really, it, it can create this uh, uh, process that's called uh, ghosting, which is, it's interesting if you spend a lot of time on like internet forums and stuff, people will occasionally post a picture and write in asking about it. And it's where they see streaks down their walls. And it looks like lines, like vertical lines coming down. Um, typically, they're darker than the color of the, the paint on the wall. And what it is is condensation that's appearing on the wall that's then getting to the point where it's dripping down. It's pulling all of the biofilm off the wall along with that, which is what's causing that darkening. Um, and we get that question a lot, like, is this mold? And the answer is not yet. probably not yet, but uh, it will be if you don't address it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think many people are not aware that the amount of water that warm air can hold is much higher than the yes. amount of water that cold air can hold. And when warm air that has a lot of moisture suspended, we don't notice that. But when that gets cooled down, that's when condensation occurs and then the dew point comes in. And I think some, some viewers might have that clarification. That, that is quite important because if you yes. use air conditioner and heat and we don't think twice about what happens to the water in the air. Hmm. Yep, and that's where a, yeah. a lot of it, I mean, it depends on what type of home you're in and everything, but I'm a huge advocate of mechanical controls that you understand how they work. Yeah. Uh, so in addition to my normal forced air HVAC system, I also have a whole home steam humidifier uh, that runs during, in our case, it runs during the winter because we actually get very, very dry, uh, particularly with uh, uh, forced air furnace that dries out the air even more. So uh, we have a steam humidifier to add some humidity in during the winter months. Uh, and then during the summer, we have a whole home dehumidifier in addition to just the standard portable one uh, to help keep that humidity in control. And it's uh, not only is it great from an indoor air quality perspective, but from an overall comfort perspective, it's it's amazing what a difference that makes. So what's the ideal humidity in the house? And many uh, people might have a hygrometer or humidity measurement in their house so they can actually look what the percentage is. What would you recommend? So I recommend 45% is really the ideal that you should be shooting for. Um, trying to keep that target within about 40 to 50% is really okay. where we... So winter, we summer, assess. about... 45, 50%. Correct. Yep. Because nice. once you once you get over about 55%, you start getting to the range where uh, mold growth definitely can occur. And once you get down below 40%, uh, you can start to encounter other issues that can actually sometimes mimic uh, mold exposure uh, from excessive uh, or from not having enough humidity in the air. Uh, it can dry out your nasal cavity. It can cause a lot of similar type of respiratory symptoms uh -huh. and it's funny we've we've been to more than one house where a client's contacted us because 
they're experiencing those kind of respiratory issues, they think it's a mold problem and it's actually the opposite. Their home's too dry. Okay, that's a better problem to have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little bit easier to fix for sure. <laughs> yeah, now uh, uh, let me ask you, it, of course, there can be many issues that cause indoor quality, like issues, like if you have furniture that gases or formaldehyde and other environmental mm -hmm. toxins. But if that's not it, there are certain houses in certain areas, like I live in Nova Scotia, we have uranium as a mineral in the soil. And it's a, it's a known issue, although many residents are not aware of it, that uranium uh, gives off radon gas and radon right. gas can seep in houses. And what does it do to you? And what, what really is it? Where is it? Yeah, in so yeah, so that, that was a great lead. Uh, radon gas comes from the breakdown of uranium in the soil, which uh, depending on where you are across the globe, certain areas, North America in particular has a lot of it. Uh, and basically as that uranium is breaking down, it's producing radon gas, which emanates up through the soil, comes in through cracks in our foundation, basically anywhere that air can seep in, it's going to begin infiltrating into our home and accumulating into high levels uh, and those levels can, over time, cause lung cancer. So basically, you breathe in the radon gas, it it's radioactive, so it continues to decay. It emits alpha particles that damage your uh, very fragile lung tissue. And so if you're, it's in the U.S., for instance, it is the second leading cause of lung cancer uh, behind smoking. And even if you are a smoker, which, again, not advising in any way, shape, or form, uh, it can actually make your lung damage from smoking even worse because it just weakens your lung that lungs that much more can make you susceptible to lung issues from other causes as well. So uh, it's something that's very, very serious. And to your point, a lot of people are unaware of it because it's uh, colorless, it's odorless, scentless. We have no way to actually detect the presence of radon with any of our olfactory senses. We just can't. So how do you find out if you live in an area that could be a problem and what do you do to find out? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I will say if you're anywhere in the 50 States or Canada, you live in an area where radon could be a problem period. Uh, and the only way to confirm or deny if you have an issue is to test it. Uh, so there's a variety of different types of radon testing available. Um, depending on where you are, like in the States, a lot of our local uh, Department of Environmental Protection or whoever your state regulatory board for that is, uh, many of them, particularly in areas that have higher radon levels, offer free or low-cost radon testing through the state. Uh, most of your home centers, your Lowe's and Home Depots, uh, sell uh, DIY radon test kits. And then there's also radon testing professionals that have specialized equipment that can come in uh, and test. And generally, those reports will be Give you a lot more detail, um, as well as uh, thankfully now in the evolution of uh, smart home devices, you can go on Amazon and there's a variety of different uh, air quality monitoring devices, many that test radon as well, um, that can give you good, pretty reliable longer term data for radon levels Very in your home. I know for us, the Lung Association here gave out those little, they look like a black hat. Yep. And they have to a little charcoal test kit. Three months and I think we had yep. to put them upstairs not in the basement and then leave them there for three months and then send them back in and our house wasn't a problem so what can lead to a radon problem in a house if you're in a radon area and is there a way to prevent it or make sure you 
even if you live in a radon area, how can you keep it out of your house at least? Yeah. So great question. I mean, whenever it comes to radon, again, the only way to know if you have it is to test it. And unless you've tested, there's zero assurances. Uh, something that we hear very, very frequently is, oh, well, my neighbor tested for radon and they didn't have it. So it's probably not a problem. Uh, that unfortunately could not be farther from the truth. Uh, so there's so many individual factors depending on the type of house that you live in. Is it a fully enclosed basement? Is it a walkout basement? What type of siding do you have? All of those things can impact uh, your radon levels and particularly what is the actual makeup of the soil directly under your home, which you have no way of knowing. Um, so you got to test. I mean, we did uh, samples just in my local neighborhood. We tested my house and about five homes all in a, a very close radius that were all built by the same builder at the same time. And the range of radon, uh, so the EPA action level for radon is four picocuries per liter of air. And that's where they recommend that you have a mitigation system installed. Um, and ours ranged from on the low point, I think 2.6 up to one of my neighbors was 17. Uh, and significant differences just 40 feet away. So, um, so yeah, the only way to know is to really test. And if you do have a problem, the good news is uh, mitigation is easily done. It's affordable. Um, and it's something that's offered pretty much anywhere that radon is an issue. And a, uh, a mitigation system is really, uh, essentially, it is a PVC pipe that goes from beneath your uh, slab, your foundation, and it exhausts to the exterior of your home, ideally up above the roof. And basically what this does, the uh, fan is installed on it as well. So that pipe is under a constant suction and it puts the uh, earth underneath your home under a suction. So any of those soil gases, rather than seeping up through cracks in your foundation, will be redirected into that pipe and then safely uh, ejected above your roof line. So it's not allowed to pile up and uh, accumulate in your home. Now, that is that is really fascinating because radon can be a real problem. Now, I know many older homes are still built without a concrete slab on the bottom, but it's just a, a gravel basement. Is it more risky or? They, so, I mean, any, again, any home can be a, can have a radon issue regardless of how it's constructed. Uh, what changes there is the type of system that's installed to mitigate the mold or to mitigate the radon. Um, in that case, for like a gravel basement or a dirt floor crawl space, uh, a liner would be installed, uh, basically an encapsulation of that, which is basically a plastic liner that goes all the way up the walls and across the bottom of it. Um, and that is completely sealed to the piers so that any uh, gas that comes in is trapped under that. And then that is depressurized the same way that we would with the slab. And it's interesting because I remember when in Nova Scotia, I went through the news because one house that wasn't far from us in the same house, the husband got cancer, died, the wife got cancer, died, even their dog got cancer and died. And then everybody talked about radon, which was helpful because everybody tested for radon. Mm -hmm. Some had to remedy it. But basically, we are told if you have a good working uh, concrete slab, you do not have to be concerned. Is that true? No, it is not. It Unfortunately, it's just so individually based on the geology under your home, type of construction and everything that there's, there is nothing that you can say this home will not have a radon problem. Uh, short of, I, I will say, if you've ever been to 
uh, like any, a lot of coastal towns in the U.S., like uh, Outer Banks, Myrtle Beach, for hurricane and flooding prevention, they're built up on uh, like 15-foot piers. So they have, yeah. (laughs) There it's probably safe to say radon's not a concern. But beyond that, yeah, it's something you should definitely test for. That's fascinating. And uh, generally speaking, we all have a low level of radiation all over the earth, and our body is made to actually deal with it because Mm -hmm. we have DNA repair mechanisms that kill all those little cancer cells that come up every day. But when it goes beyond a certain level, and that's where your EPA action level comes in, the likelihood that somebody gets cancer is so much higher. Correct. And and not to go too sort of uh, philosophical with it too, but at the same time, we're spending so much more time indoors. Uh, Now we're spending so much, and especially, I mean, even since the pandemic, we're spending so much more time inside the same doors. We're spending so much more time inside our same homes. Absolutely. Um, I'm working right now from my home office and that's in the basement of my home. Uh, prior to a few years ago, I didn't spend anywhere near as much time here. Yeah, yeah. But now we spend a lot more time in our homes. And uh, really anytime we're talking about environmental issues, we're very seldom concerned about being exposed to uh, an acute exposure or a large amount over a short period of time. Like, it's not like you're going to walk into a home that has crazy high rate on levels and all of a sudden you're going to get lung cancer. That's not how it works. It's yeah. exposure over a long period of time. Yeah. So, and, and that's really our... more dangerous for cancer rates. And, and coming from Germany, I actually lived in an area where we went in the fallout when Chernobyl exploded in 1983. And mm-hmm. we had to change everything, the soil in the sandbox for the kids in the garden. We couldn't drink milk for a year. It was a catastrophe. That is not what we are talking about. It's not right. about radioactive. It's about the baseline radioactivity that in certain areas of the house is elevated and can be concentrated inside your house if you don't know. And if you don't do anything about it, you might have a higher risk to get cancer, especially lung cancer. Wow. And another anecdote coming from Germany where radioactivity was discovered by Marie Curie and Pierre Curie, mm-hmm. and by the way, they died from it. My dear father, he had a radioactive watch from the Second World War. He was a physicist yep. and it was those little radon dots that light in the dark. And we loved it mm-hmm. as kids. And one day he came with the Geiger counter and said, watch this. And it went off. <laughs> oh my God. And you know what I learned later? There are caves in the Alps in Germany, Switzerland, and Austria with a very high radon concentration. And they actually put people with autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis in there to heal them before Hmm. we had better methods to do so. I think it's fascinating how the history of medicine and what we're currently experiencing all ties in with each other. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even even the in the U.S., the unit of measure we use for radon exposure is picocuries per liter of air, yeah. and picocurie comes from curie, yeah. right there. Yeah, Pierre, Pierre Curie was trampled to death by a horse. <laughs> no cars yet. It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. And when you think that X-rays were used to measure shoe size uh, before the Second World War, they didn't know that it causes cancer at the beginning. And that's, oh, yes. that's something that's, yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. Anytime we talk about just over time, the things that we've done, like going tying it back to mold exposure. I mean, something that 
we see all the time, particularly in the late 80s and all throughout the 90s, uh, we developed new building processes that we thought were amazing for uh, energy efficiency. And we ended up creating a lot of issues with indoor air quality and mold problems because we were applying practices from other parts of the globe or other ideas that we thought would work. And turns out they didn't. Uh, we didn't know well, what we that, didn't that know. really interesting. I could continue for hours to talk with you about the pros and cons of that globalization in the widest area. That's a very big issue. But I really appreciate your deep knowledge on that issue. And I think all the listeners got a good understanding of mold and radon and indoor air quality and what in our modern time can influence it in either way. Now, yeah. we'll wrap up for today. And it was amazing to have you, Tim. Thank you so much. Before we go, how can anybody interested in that and say, I'm not sure. Is that anything? I have questions. Is that mold there in my bathroom uh, ceiling? How can they reach you? Yeah, so uh, first, thank you very much for having me on. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I really appreciate a lot of the questions. It went in a different direction than a lot of uh, a lot of the talks that I do. And I, I, I appreciate that. It was very good. Um, so you can reach us at uh, moldmedics, M-O-L-D-M-E-D-I-C-S.com. Uh, that's our website. It's going to have links to all of our socials. Uh, we've really been making great strides recently to provide a lot more resources for people uh, in terms of information about a lot of the different issues that we see, how they can prevent indoor air quality problems uh, and help resolve them on their own. So that's that can be a great resource. Uh, and currently, we're our office, we're based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, but we are actively franchising as well. So anybody who's potentially interested in expanding or getting into the in indoor air quality space, there are opportunities there. It's greatly needed, and maybe we see more mold medics all over the country soon, and maybe all over North America. God knows, only the world will tell. Only time will tell, Tim. You are there on a mission, and you certainly have a topic that many people are very interested in learning more about. Thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and this was this episode of Sparkles for Better Mental Health, and indoor quality affects mental health and can extinguish all your sparkles. <laughs> As I always say, thank you, Tim. It was a pleasure having you. Bye-bye.